This is The Conversation on Hawaii Public Radio. I'm Catherine Cruz. On January 6, 1866, the first group of people diagnosed with leprosy, or Hansen's disease, touched down at Molokai. Nine men and three women were dropped off at the mouth of Waikolu Valley, the closest accessible point to the village of Kalawao on the southeast side of the Kalaupapa Peninsula. It was there at the remote settlement that they would live in isolation. Over the course of the area's history, some 8,000 others were sent to live in isolation, in an effort to curb the spread of the incurable, disfiguring disease. In honor of their memory, members of the Kaohana o Kalapapa worked to have January designated as Kalapapa Month. Governor David Ige signed the bill into law last year, and 2022 marks its first commemoration. Board member Kehaulani Lam can trace her roots to three residents of the settlement, and she's been focused on making sure the stories of the settlement aren't forgotten. The words of the residents themselves say it best, like John Aruda, who said that Kalaupapa Month will be a time to think about all our people who were sent here, all that we went through and who we are. So for us, we're just carrying the lineage in deep gratitude to our ancestors and to hopefully bring light to the stories that are so important and pertinent to us all today. As we struggle with this pandemic and everything Mm. that we've seen and experienced over the last, gosh, two years, the fact that the settlement there actually saw its first residence on January 6th. There were, what, a dozen people that were first sent there. That's right. That's what the understanding is, that the first 12 citizens were sent to Kalaupapa Peninsula because of government policies regarding leprosy. And they arrived there. Not much is known about them other than their names, but we believe that some of them actually brought Kokua, family member, with them to help care for them. So that happened 156 years ago. It started with 12. That number swelled to 8,000. And today we just have a a handful of, of residents left there at the settlement. That's true. And actually, when you think about it, it covered a period of actively of about over a century. So that number was sent there over a century, but it doesn't include the families who extend beyond the, the ones who were sent away and never to return to their families. When we think of that, we don't even know the actual extent, the fullness of the impact on all of us, because many of them were taken away as children, which was the situation with our family. Three children were taken away, aged 9, 16, and 10. Two of them perished there and left no descendants directly. One of them, who I only became introduced to later in my life, was able to live a full life and transform a really horrific experience into a place of inspiration, and he would eventually call his beloved home. You have then this direct tie to that community. And as the numbers dwindle, it's so important to keep the stories alive of the people who were part of that settlement. Yes, we're now talking about, in my case, this is third generation since they were first sent there. Some have not even had a chance to ever meet them. And so what they will learn of them, like all of us who are so intimately involved in genealogy, 
and wanting to know who we are and who we come from, it's even more important for us to study research and try to learn about them. And that's what the beauty of this recognition of a month is, is it gives us opportunities to really focus our attention, to remember the ancestors, uh, to advocate for more teaching in classrooms about them, and even in churches, and throughout the community as much as possible. Because for so long, the stories were silenced, right? People didn't talk about them. My grandma's generation, she didn't talk to us about it. We only knew that she had a brother who was sent there. And it wasn't until much later that I finally got to meet him and to know. And it will be a very sad loss for the families and for Hawaii if we allowed this period to go without being commemorated. Especially today, as you point out, as we ourselves have been faced directly with a similar situation of a disease entering Hawaii, not knowing much about it, not having access to resources to combat it for a long time. But what we experience today, though it may feel like imprisonment, it's actually not what the 8,000 people who were sent to Kalaupapa experienced. For them, it was truly You know, there was fear, there was isolation back then, and, you know, we recall when the vaccines came to Kalapapa, the COVID-19 vaccines, and we talked to the sisters there, the nuns, Mm -hmm. who were helping, I guess, play traffic cop that day as, you know, uh, they were trying to uh, get the vaccines uh, into the arms of the residents there and the staff. And so it was really kind of a, I guess, a, a, a day to reflect on just the history of Kalapapa and the parallels that we're going through today with the pandemic. The parallels and actually the inspiration that they all have left us because so many, the stories that continue to unfold as the Ohana is able to conduct more research and more importantly connect and reconnect family members with Kalaupapa, with their ancestors, even every little tidbit, you know, more so of information, a photograph, a name, a small story something that helps us to know who they were. And many of them went on to be great leaders and very important in their community and even for Hawaii and and the world. So there's something in there that is very vital to all of us to be able to take a breath and realize we're not the first ones to go through this. We are blessed because the same department that still continues to oversee the settlement is today helping us to address this situation in, I'd say, a loving and compassionate way. I know that the pandemic kind of threw some cold water on the efforts to fundraise for the memorial that's planned for Kalapapa. Yeah, Yeah, it's really ironic. I remember writing my testimony to present to the legislature and actually going down there. And not only my testimony, but I was also representing a kupuna who could no longer speak in person to talk about how she had been championing this for over a decade. And it was ironic to find out that we couldn't go any further because of a pandemic. And so not only were they harmed in life, but even in death, we're still confronting this need to bring light to the situation. And so share with our Uh, listeners, you you would like to have this uh, memorial with the names of all 8,000 of those uh, patients inscribed on there. Yes, to the extent that it's possible, absolutely. Because, you know, 8,000 people were sent there, but only over 1,000 graves are actually marked today. 
So in my family situation, while three were sent there, only one has a headstone. Two of them are not marked. And so the majority of people who were sent there do not have the benefit of a space, a sacred space, where descendants can go and place offerings, flowers, lay, mementos, and center ourselves and find peace. The stigma created by the exile of the people was carried generationally. And so today you find many families still having to address that. Right, to heal, to recover from all of that, and to transform shame into pride. And so if folks want to donate to this cause? They can contact the Ohana. There are many ways that donations can be made. There's a website the Ohana maintains. There's a Facebook site. You can actually send it in by mail to the P.O. Box 1111 in Kalaupapa. Nine six seven four two. My understanding is that the goal is to raise five million dollars, or a minimum of five million, to actually construct it because we have to bring everything, you know, move in there ah, and, and okay. create it, and so you have to bring all of the equipment and such there, and then an additional five or so million to be able to serve as an endowment to sustain it. The Ohana feels very strongly that we want to make sure that it can stay in perpetuity. And so really to the credit of the ones who are leading this, that is the vision. That was Kehaulani Lam, who's on the board of directors for Ka'ohana Okalapapa. She was talking about a fundraising effort for a memorial to honor the patients of Kalapapa, many who are in unmarked graves in the refuge. The first step, Lum says, is to commemorate January as Kalapapa Month to draw attention to the vision to keep the settlement stories alive. ago that residents of Kalapapa were receiving the first of two shots to protect them from the COVID-19 coronavirus. The rollout of the vaccine came just as the settlement community marked the feast day of St. Mother Marianne Cope. Sister Alicia and Sister Barbara Jean spoke with us at the time, excited about being offered the added protection during this pandemic. It's a great opportunity. And of course, Dr. Wasserman has been working very diligently to get the patients vaccinated. But because he has 100 vaccines to be given out, and there's only right currently in Kalapapa five you know, residents, we needed to take a look at, okay, so who else can we vaccinate? Both sister and I are up there in age, and you know we can't really go out and try to get vaccinated in any other area. So we were very, very happy when Dr. Wasserman said that, yes, he's bringing it in. So I think we're having about 50 people vaccinated today. Of course, the patients are first and then the healthcare workers that deal directly with the staff and then sister and I. And of course, father is over the age of 75 also. So wanted to make sure that we do get vaccinated as part of it. And then I believe they've contacted as many of the National Park Service staff and the Department of Health staff who would like it. So sister and I will be helping out with probably the traffic flow. 
in it because they're coming up to the Bishop Home Complex using one of the cottages that we have around the corner. And just to make sure that everybody follows the one-way path around the whole Bishop Home Complex. You'll be playing traffic cops today. We're playing traffic cops, yeah. Uh-huh. <laughs> and, you know, this comes at a time where you folks have just marked Mother Mary and Cope's feast day. Sister Barbara Jean, do you want to talk about what the, you folks did this weekend? It was lower than usual, but very eventful. So the first thing I want to say is I want to inject the word chronologically to Sister's statement as we're up there in age, because our spirits are still pretty vibrant, even though our age wouldn't indicate such. So in the spirit of St. Mary Ann, we let the superintendent of the National Park know what we were doing, and Saturday, which was the actual feast day, we got up early, we started making spam musubi in three <laughs> different flavors, bacon, garlic, and Portuguese sausage. Then we we went to Mass. We had a really nice liturgy with singing. We had the relic of St. Mary Ann in front of the altar. And then after that, we came home and, and we ended up visiting all the people who were in their homes in the settlement and handing out the spam and a little packet that had a hand sanitizer from the Order of St. Lazarus, a little prayer card as a memento, and then some cookies and a little candy treat. So very different from what you would normally see. Uh, Sister Alicia, talk about you know what a big event this normally would be. Well, normally the Order of St. Lazarus for the past couple of years has been very, very supportive of all of the patients here. Not only have they delivered a lot of medical equipment for the care home, but popcorn machines and games, the um, cornhole games and everything. So, you know, they're always here. And usually on the feast of Mother Marianne or Damien, they would bring their order in from the West Coast and we would just have a big celebration with liturgy. And then they would bring in a luau and cater it from topside Molokai and pay for everything and invite all the staff and the patients to go there. So we would at least have about 70, 80 people gathering together at McVeigh Hall and just having fun together. Right. And you normally would have a special choir come in, too. Yes, we do. We had the St. John Vianney's Choir, which was made up of everybody that was from St. John Vianney's who have been coming here for the past 35 years. And eventually some of them went to the Cathedral of Basilica, and we had a couple from the Big Island that would pay their own expense to come here and to add to our liturgy services, yes. The feast day then certainly comes at the start of a big week where the community there then is going to be vaccinated. What are your thoughts, Sister Barbara Jean, just about this time and the significance of, you know, this pandemic and Kalopapa's history? It's a remarkable continuation of a circle of life. When the first patients came here, they were exiled. It was a lifetime commitment, so they considered themselves prisoners over here in the peninsula, which is three sides surrounded with water, and then one side is, for them, it would be unclimbable cliffs. And over time, it turned from a prison to a paradise because they were able to form new friendships, find companionship. Many of them fell in love, got married, and had children. And so it changed 
from being a place of exile to being a community of people who looked out for each other. Today, the exile is kind of reversed. We're here, and no one is allowed to come in, and that is to take care of and protect the people who are most vulnerable here, which is the patient. Sister Alicia, you've been there since 1965. How are you looking at this pandemic and this health crisis? Well, it's very interesting. We just had a Damien Marianne Catholic conference, and I did a presentation on looking at COVID and looking at the time when we had the pandemic of leprosy here in Hawaii. And although it seems like it's similar, you know, you're talking about the fear that went through everybody's mind, the segregation, people who are dying alone without their families and everything like that. It's, you know, very similar but different in a lot of it. It was racism, there's anger, and you can see that just coming through with this COVID and everything that's happening. You know, the psychological feeling of, you know, the depression, it's emotionally draining for a lot of people. And, of course, the financial stress of it all. You know, it was very interesting when they were segregated here, as Sister was saying, in exile. You know, one of the patients told me, you know, this is worse than a prison. And I kind of like looked at him and I said, why? And he says, because in prison, at least you got a chance to be paroled. When you came here, there was no parole. We were here for life. You know, and that kind of always puts chills in my spine when I hear that, because that's true. So, you know, when you take a look at COVID at this point and, and whatnot, Mother Marianne, when she came here, she answered the call without knowing what she was doing. But God had given her the skills to be able to come here and accept everybody. He had allowed her to open up a hospital in Syracuse, New York, brought in all of the School of Medicine, who then brought in all of the information about pasture and infection, infection control. And that was in the 1870s. She didn't come here until the 1883. So who would have known that God was already preparing her with all of that knowledge, with all of that grace, with all of that values to come here to Hawaii to take care of those with leprosy? And she didn't realize that she was doing that. And she had not seen people with leprosy until she actually came here in 1883 and went to the Kaka'aka receiving station. She and the sisters saw people with leprosy for the first time. So it's fitting that we honor her memory and her sacrifice and contribution to the settlement at this time as as you folks start to get the vaccines today. You know, your email ends with a line, I think life is all too short to spend any part of it in worry and anxiety. Yes, those are Mother Mary Ann's words. You know, I know there was a concern because you had the one positive case there. Yeah. I mean, thank goodness for the Department of Health and some of their Um, protocols because it is important to keep everybody in the settlement safe. That was Sister Alicia and Sister Barbara Jean, two of the last nuns at the Kalapapa Settlement. We talked to them last year as they and the residents and staff of the National Park Service and State Health Department were getting their first COVID vaccines. If you're just joining the conversation, we're airing a special broadcast commemorating January as Kalapapa Month. Have a story about the settlement that you'd like to share? Write to us at TalkBack at hawaiipublicradio.org. Stay with us. We'll be right back after a break. (laughs) 
Harpist Ruth Friedman spent a decade at Kalopapa. She's also a nurse, originally from Israel, who, along with her healing harp, were recruited to tend to the Hans's disease patients. You may have seen Friedman, who's now in her 80s, playing around town. During the pandemic shutdown, she wasn't able to publicly play the harp, so she turned her musical skills to transcribing a collection of Negro spirituals. She first discovered the compilation by African-American composer Harry Thacker Burley in a music shop in Nevada. Some of the songs were more than 100 years old. Thanks to Friedman, they have been published by Lion and Healy Harps out of Chicago. I was just passing a music store, and I can't resist, like a dress store. You want to see, is there something new that will fit? And I saw this box with sale items, and on the top it said, Twelve Negro spirituals. Well, I wasn't interested. I passed it by because I'm Jewish. But at the same time, I had just looked inside, and it looked rather harpistic. And that is something that was appealing to me, the sale also. So I bought it and took it home. It was so beautifully corded, such development. I was so entranced. I went back. This man had written about a hundred art songs, as well as transcribing them and printing out the spirituals. He set it down after he was recruited from the New York Conservatory of Music by Booker T. Washington, who was looking for somebody to take him on summer trips so that he could give his speeches, yet the ex-slaves or sharecroppers go into his college when he first got there on a work scholarship. So he was a descendant of a slave? Yes, his grandson. And the grandfather took him and his little brother around when they had to guide him through the streets. And he would sing to the boys because he couldn't tell them stories and couldn't read a book. He had such a beautiful voice. The grandson happened to inherit that virtue, and he became a singer in their choirs and then launched out into being a wedding singer until he was discovered. Now, who was the director of New York Conservatory of Music at that time? He had just come in. His name was Anton de Vorschach, and nobody knew that he was trying to find from little hurdy-gurdies or whatever street music he could hear, the music of America. He was writing a symphony that he would call the New World Symphony. And this was his discovery. When he heard this black student, I believe he was 26, washing the floors at night and singing with his beautiful baritone voice. He said, this is Anton Dvorak, he said, change this man's work program so that he sings for me each evening for my supper, the plantation songs. And this was the a story, but... He could not put it into his New World Symphony because his colleagues were so adverse to it. And Anton Dvorak said, what do you mean? This is the freshest music I've found on this side of the water. But he didn't. He left all the spirituals out. And the closest thing is maybe in the second movement of his New World Symphony, 
which had its opening premiere at Carnegie, almost one of the first Carnegie performances given shortly before Anton Dvorak returned to Bohemia. Well, so so basically, though, he recognized the passion in these Negro spirituals. Exactly right. And so then he told Perry, before he went back to Bohemia, he says, give these melodies to the world. But where I found it, it was solos for a singer with the background music, you know, some chords here and there. And also they had choir arrangements, but nothing was ever uh, written for a solo instrument or piano. Tell us about how you turned to the harp for healing. I have to say one thing. It is the most healing of any instrument, and this is from Arthur Harvey, a professor in music therapy at UH. He says, why is it so therapeutic? Because of its resonance, the resonance from its deep sound body. Now, you were a nurse at Kalopapa, and you brought your harp with you. My furniture follows me everywhere. It really is. It's my treasure, and it's my distraction, and I only picked it up in college. So you were able to uh, play this harp for the residents there at Kalapapa? Correct. But the one thing is that it was the sister who played the organ, and I think it helped me get that job. So they put it into the church. And the sister there would have me accompany whatever they were doing for uh, the choir, a beautiful choir of the patients. In Latin, they couldn't change because so many patients had become blind. So it was sort of known as last Latin mass in Hawaii. And this is where, where I played. But once I heard a black man singing. He wasn't black, but the medicine turned his skin dark. And he was just singing, nobody knows the trouble I've seen. So I took him, walked him over to the church. The harp had just come in, and I sat him down, and I asked him to sing it, and I played with the harp. Thank goodness I had that in my little notebook. And his voice was so deep, so resonant, so heartfelt, and the height of the little church there, St. Francis Church, was so much that it carried everything. And he just sang with all his heart. And then we made a little program that I recorded the next day. That was Ruth Friedman talking about harp therapy. The patient she talked about was Makio Malo, Kalapapa's storyteller who passed away last fall, one week shy of his 87th birthday. Ruth Friedman shared this recording of Makio's song with us.
Back in 2013, HPR's Noe Tanigawa introduced listeners to Kalapapa resident Makio Malo, an award-winning writer, storyteller, and educator. Malo was diagnosed with Hansen's disease at age 12, and he was exiled to Kalapapa in 1947. 2013 was also the year that Mala was featured at the Hawaii Book and Music Festival. He had just published his book, My Name is Makio, a memoir of Kalopapa. I had no understanding of the disease. Few did in 1947 when Elroy Makia Malo was diagnosed with Hansen's disease, a bacterial infection that creates lesions, ulcers, and numbness in the coldest parts of the body, the ears, fingers, nose. Hansen's disease is spread through coughs and sneezes, but 95% of people are naturally immune. Others are not. Malo watched his older brother and sister get bundled off to Hawaii's, quote, leper colony on the north side of Molokai, the isolated landing at Kalaupapa. And then when the day my dad and I were reported to have that disease, and again we went to Dr. Chanun's office, they snipped our ear to get blood samples. And then about an hour later, we were sitting in the waiting room. Dr. Chanun comes and he says, Mr. Marlowe, I have good news for you. You don't have the disease. And then he waited. But I'm afraid, Mr. Marlowe, your son Elroy does. And then before Dr. Chandler said anything else, my dad, he said, Oh, doctor, doctor, uh, I'd like my boy to go to Kalaupapa today. When Malo arrived, there were about 400 residents at Kalaupapa. Many didn't walk around. They didn't go to the airport walking or Kalawao. They didn't walk around town even. Malo says only five to seven of the patients actually walked the town because walking often led to lesions on their feet. Before he lost his vision, hands, and feet, Malo loved to hunt. I was too active, yeah. And the worst part is that our feet don't feel. So more you go, the more fun you have. But in time, the ulcers get worse, the pain increases. That's when my whole world started to crumble. It was scary. News personality Pamela Young put Malo's current memoir together by combining years of conversations, previously written material, and his many stories. You went to university, you taught there, you traveled all over the world, you married and fell in love. Despite everything, you're pretty lucky, aren't you? Very. Surviving so long. What little chances we had of doing so much, we enjoyed it. When you were in that condition, and you know life is going on on outside, you think, oh, what the heck? I like to go down the bar. I like to drink soda. You know, I like to eat ice cream, you know? We had movies twice a week, free movies. We had three bars open. Not that there were many people who drank, but they'd go there and eat ice cream, candy, and stuff. It was nice to meet some of them. They didn't let the disease hold them down. The sunset of Club Papa smiles through the evening rain. My island of dreams means so much to me. Hansen's disease is completely curable today. Over 8,000 people were sent to Kalaupapa. Most died there. 17 remain. Noe Tanigawa for Hawaii Public Radio. 
and kiss me as lovers do. Then the sunset of cloud papa will be a dream come true. That was Kalapapa resident Makio Malo, whose story HPR's Noe Tanigawa shared back in 2013. If you're just joining the conversation, we are airing a special broadcast commemorating January as Kalapapa Month. Do you have a story about the settlement that you'd like to share? Call us or write to us at talkback at hawaiipublicradio.org. Stay with us. We'll be right back after a break. June of 2019 marked the 45th anniversary of the end of isolation in the Kalapapa settlement for leprosy, or Hansen's disease. The residents who had endured permanent quarantine because of their contagious disease moved into the remote settlement and most died there. We reached out to local historian and author John Clark to talk about the parallels with our seclusion due to COVID-19. They were physically removed from all of their homes. They were sent to Honolulu where they were processed, and then they were sent over to the Kalapapa Peninsula. And they just lived there for the rest of their lives. And most of them, in fact, almost all of them never saw their families again. And if they had children there, the children were taken away from them when they were infants and given to family or friends or to an orphanage. As a yeah, for someone else to raise. Exactly. I think there was a letter that someone wrote, it was a lament for their son, where she talks about the umbilical cord is cut. Yes. And just the heartache of that separation. Exactly. The babies were taken away from their parents as soon as, almost as soon as they were born. There's also another point in the book where I believe they had passed a law saying that if your spouse came down with leprosy, with Hansen's disease, that you could file for a divorce. Oh, yeah. That happened a little later, you know, in the history of Kalapapa, but that was true, too, because it was being sent there was just like being, you know, it was like the person died. I mean, the the lack of contact was absolute. So I guess the law just regard, regarded it as, you know, the person was no no longer accepted accessible to the uh, to the spouse. But there were uh, were spouses who said no, for better, for worse, in sickness and his ha- in health, and they went down to Kalopapa to spend the rest of their lives with their with their loved one. You're right. They were called kokua. You know, kokua in Hawaiian means help. So the kokua were, were helpers, and most of them were just what you described. They were usually spouses or, or, or family members, but they actually had to apply to the Board of Health and get permission to be a kokua. And if they did get permission, they were allowed to go there and, and live with the patient. So talk about this book, that you your most recent book, because you did something a little different, right? You use letters from the residents of Kalapapa that were sent into the newspapers. So they were Hawaiian language newspapers. Yes. Well, I named the book Kalapapa Place Names. And place names um, and their mo'olelo, the stories behind the names, have always been of interest to me. 
So what I did is I, I just made a, a master list of every place name I could find on the Kalapapa Peninsula, and I started looking for those names. I started searching for them in the Hawaiian language newspapers. They're online and they're searchable. So anyway, what happened was, as I was searching for articles about and stories about these place names, then all of these letters and articles and all of this stuff from the patients themselves started coming up on my searches. And the amount of information that I gathered, especially, you know, directly from the patients themselves, writing back to the editors in Honolulu was just phenomenal. And your book is dedicated to the memory of your great-great-grandmother. Yes. You know, Catherine, that's quite an interesting story. I had done all of this research and gotten all of the articles translated. I wrote the book, submitted my manuscript to the UH Press, and the book was already moving. It was already moving through the production pipeline. And out of the clear blue, I got a call from a relative here on Oahu, and she had a question about family genealogy. So anyway, we talked story for a little while, and then she asked me, she said, well, what are you working on right now? And I said, oh, a book on Kalapapa. And she says, do you know that you had a relative that was a patient that was sent to Kalapapa? And I said, no, I had absolutely no idea. So anyway, she told me the story, and it turned out to be my great-great-grandmother. And so I dedicated the book to her. And that's Emily? Yes, Emily. Gosh, so were you able to try and do a deep dive on her story and what her experience was? <laughs> well, even more interesting than the story I just told you is that when my relative here on Oahu told me her name, Emily, I recognized it immediately because <sighs> I had seen it in one of the articles that was in the book. And the article that had her name in it was an article that listed patients who had died in the year 1885. So using that and using her name, I tried to track down information about her, but there wasn't much. There wasn't much at all. When I was researching my Beaches of Maui County Beach book back in the, the late 1980s, I, I actually went down to Kalapapa because they have beaches down there. And I walked up and down the trail on uh, several different occasions and spent the night down there and Talked with the superintendent, I, you know, talked to the patients, and I did my thing, checking out all the beaches on the peninsula. So the beaches are what took me there initially, but once I got there, of course, it was just total immersion on everything that had happened there from 1866 on. Well, I know this state archives is trying to digitize all the records from all the residents there, so they will be available to relatives so that if you wanted to do research that you would be able to do that. Oh, well, that's that's really good information. Thank you for letting me know. I didn't realize that. You know, what I tried to do was not to repeat what everybody else had already done and, you know, the research that had gone on before me, but I focused on the Hawaiian language newspapers as a, a rather unique resource, and I think I got a lot of uh, information to add to the overall history of Kalapapa. Now, I know they're working on a memorial of the 8,000 residents who yes. live down there. Do you think you're going to try and make it down there when, when they dedicate that, knowing that you have a connection there? Oh, of course. Yeah, the, the memorial's in, in a field right across from Father Damien's church over in Kalawao, um, his St. Filomeno church. Just on the Malka side of it, there's a nice big open field there, and, and that's the site for the memorial. That, yeah, I'd love to get down there if... Um, 
if they can accommodate everybody that wants to go. Have you been there to try and find your great-great-grandmother's tombstone? I don't know if she's buried there. She is buried there, but she's in an unmarked grave. So as far as I know, the site of her burial is not recorded anywhere. I haven't been able to track it down through any of the resources that are available right now. There are other patients, too, that are in unmarked graves, but I believe the memorial is going to, as long as they can document that someone was there and someone died there, their name will still be included on the memorial, whether they found a gravestone for them or not. In the history of leprosy in the Hawaiian Islands, we all think that everybody was sent to Kalaupapa beginning in 1866, and that's the only place that there were settlements, but from the very beginning, the patients and the families lobbied for local segregation, and they wanted to establish leprosy settlements on the main islands and not just at Kalapapa and Molokai. So anyway, there were a lot of recommendations in the legislature, and there were even field trips over to Kauai, Kalalau Valley, to see if that would work as an alternate site for local segregation. But in the end, none of the alternate sites were approved and everybody just got sent over to the Kalapapa Peninsula. You know, one of the things that really came through to me is that the majority of the people, the majority of the patients realized that they were sent there for the rest of their lives. And they weren't negative about it. I mean, there were a lot of things that they didn't like. They wished they could change it. They wished they could have had local segregation, but they made the best of it there. They tried to be positive, and I think that comes through loud and clear when you, when you read the articles and you read what they've written, that they just tried to live their lives as best they could and made the best out of a, a not-so-good situation. And, you know, the Hawaiian language newspapers, they started off in 1834, even well before the settlement was established over there. And the Hawaiian language newspapers kept the patients, the residents at Kalapapa, informed of exactly what was happening on the other Hawaiian islands. So all of the holidays, you know, whether it was the 4th of July or New Year's, or even in the 1900s, like May Day, King Kamehameha Day, all of those holiday celebrations, they were celebrating them there with parades and sporting events and all kinds of stuff, just like the rest of the folks in Hawaii were. So, yeah, they were upbeat. They were positive. They just tried to make the best of where they were. Historian and author John Clark talking about his most recent book, Kalapapa Place Names and the Parallels of the Permanent Isolation. We've been highlighting the parallels of isolation at Kalapapa and our current isolation. We've explored a book on Kalapapa place names, and now we share a tale about a tree, the Chalmuga tree. You can find one growing at the UH Manoa campus next to Bachman Hall. We were there with a master gardener's group that set up an exhibit to draw attention to its storied past. It was a blustery day in February, and we were situated near a flagpole. Gardeners Capona Ryan and Julian Lipshire recalled they first discovered the tree as part of a tour on notable specimens on the Manoa campus. 
That was an introduction to a tree which was used as a treatment for leprosy, thanks to University of Hawaii chemist Alice Ball. Master gardener Julian Lipscher picks up the story. It is part of their history, and it's part of the history of the disease. It's part of Damien's legacy and St. Marianne Cope's legacy. It was part of the legacy of the U.S. Public Health Service that built a hospital there at great expense in the early 1900s that failed miserably because they were doing an experiment that further separated people from their community at Kalaupapa. It seemed like a natural confluence of effort to bring the Shalmuga tree back to Kalaupapa and you know, further our knowledge on propagation of trees from the Master Gardener program. And Kapona, you have a personal story, a connection with Kalaupapa. Well, actually I do, but I didn't know that. And at first it started where, where we took that tour with, for the Campus Arboretum. We came across the Chamuga tree and we went, oh my gosh, this is a Chamuga tree. And we went through all that process as master gardeners. So if you consider a parallel universe, is I'm working towards the Chamuga tree side of the story. But somewhere in the mainland, my cousins are working on ancestry and trying to track that down. And they find out that we have... Um, that I have a great-grandmother who's buried in Kalapapa. But as they're coming to that conclusion, and I'm coming to the conclusion that I'm going to go to Kalapapa in October, they're going to come out in August. They said, did you know about this? And I said, no. So we went ahead of time to be able to track that down. And suddenly it's like, I have two sides to the story. I have this science, love for nature, botany side. And then I have a personal story with my great-grandmother who happens to be buried there. And to be able to get from the health department and from the National Park Services information on her and pictures of her. And I am just moved because for our circumstances, the family had been broken up when great-grandma had been taken away and the kids had been fostered out. And so there was always talk about what is this all about? Why did grandma let you go? Why did mom let you go? And that kind of stuff. But it wasn't until we started getting more and more information about the situation on Kalapapa that we actually figured out, and there was healing for the family, is it was because the Hansen's disease had separated us. And in Hawaiian it's Hana, I mean, you know, kind of mysterious, I cannot talk about it. So there was a silent side to grandma and what happened to great grandma. And, uh, but this whole thing with the chamuga growing and with my, my great grandmother just came together. And so it was an awesome, even deeper and special time. I went to a meeting with Kalapapa Ohana and you know about the memorial, but I happened to meet my cousins there who are part of the Nihipali family. And they expressed, just to show you how Hawaiians are all tied up somehow. So these are my cousins. And he expressed that in his ancestry line, in Kalawao and in that area, his family were ones that had been displaced when the Hansen thing had come. So there were originally settlers, Hawaiian settlers there who had to move or could stay or there were different things, but they were some of the original people that received the, the lepers in the beginning and fed them and took care of them and considered them part of family. So I have it from different sides. I have from my mother's side is my great grandmother who's buried there. And I have from more or less from my dad's side. So um, my Calabash side from my dad's side is the people that may have received her. If you think about that, I mean, I have no proof that they're the ones who received her, but Hawaii is a small place. So I assume that one set of the side of the family accepted the other set and there was love between both sets.
That's an incredible story. Were you, was your family able to do the research through the, like, the state archives and the health department records, that kind of thing? Health department and also the Kalapapa Ohana people as well. And then also, you know, this Ancestry.com thing is just right. tracking everywhere. And then we went through the legal papers because, you know, now they have the things where in land court, the information is now being translated out of Hawaiian into English. And that was helpful, too, to be able to track the names on the different legal spiegel stuff and the land grants, etc. So you visited her gravesite. And I visited her gravesite. So actually was able to go there Oli and put lei on there and there's such a peace when you come there so you know people tell you different things about Kalapapa and the sadness but I'll tell you one quick story is that Richard who was our tour guide Richard Miller retired park service employee so I had gone to my great-grandmother's grave sites the second time it's with the master gardeners in October but I went by myself and Richard and her thing is is to one side I'm doing my due respect and my honors it's facing towards the ocean and Richard tells me turn around and I said why and he says turn around just turn around and I turn around and there's a big recreational spot with a large playing field and mountains on top and everything else and he shared with me is they had a life they had a a life that was filled with joy, filled with all kinds of other stuff. They had horse races on one part, potlucks here, hot dogs being, you know. And so I could see for myself that this was gravesite to one side, to the ocean side and to the mountain side, there was a playground where there was happiness and there was joy. And yes, there was separation and hardship and loneliness and all that breaking up of family. But you could also see that there was beauty and grace and joy at that one spot. That is part of the story at Kalapapa that shouldn't be forgotten. And we were hearing from Julian Lipscher and Kapona Ryan, part of a master gardeners group, working to keep a part of Kalapapa history intact by sharing the story of the Chalmuga tree. The Park Service has propagated seeds from the Manoa tree with plans to replant them at the settlement in a nod to the settlement's history. After some TLC by the Master Gardeners, we were told that the Manoa tree bloomed in the spring, something some say they had not seen happen in quite some time. My island of dreams means so much to me. That wraps it up for us today. We would like to hear your feedback, though. Do you have a story or have Kalapapa roots? Share it on our talkback line at 808-792-8217. You can also email us at talkback at hawaiipublicradio.org. I'm Catherine Cruz. Join us again for more of the conversation. The sunset of Kalapapa.